and everything not blow up. I'm still here. This one's oh, you're still yeah. here. <laughs> so this is the SitePed podcast for developers who can't JavaScript good and want to learn to do other things good too. I'm your host, Tori Rice, and hopefully still with me is Nick Nisi. Hey, hey. Neil Roberts. I'm just happy to be here. And Paul Shannon. Ooh, what Neil said. Well, I'm just thankful, guys, that we got through that without someone talking over somebody else. As I, it makes me proud. You someone mean you don't fix Tori. that in editing? I fixed over Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't fix it in editing because if you guys just can't do it right the first time, then what are we even here for? Um, so the episode today is brought to you by um, the Travel Industry of Canada. This November, when things go south, why don't you go north? Canada. It's a place. So how are you guys doing today? I was hoping we were going to have like a, a Drumpf sponsorship or something like that. Yes. I couldn't nail oh, that I down. That. I'm not going to lie. So I live in Nebraska. The Nebraska caucus is on Saturday. And I will be there. And I will be wearing a Make Donald Drumpf again hat. Nice. Awesome. Nice. I want one of those so bad. Well, I was trying to get us some, but I couldn't make the sponsorship happen in time, and I'm sorry, wow. guys. Apparently, um, apparently, political sponsorships are actually really hard to do because there's this whole there's like election laws, and apparently, I'm the only one that wants to follow them. So, oh yeah, yeah, you're the you're it. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, anyway, I'm not even sure what party we would support. Like, I guess we probably have like an ad for like the green party or something. I'm not really sure. Just because our color is green. Yeah. Well, our color is green. So the green party seems to make sense. Um, I don't know anything about them politically, of course, just that green. I like the color. So that's how I choose most things. Um, I'm voting for Canada this year. So yeah, well, it's a good thing that my wife's a dual citizen and we're, I'm not going to lie. Like we did, kick around the idea of getting the kids citizenship so i don't know i'm a dual citizen as well but i don't think that my option is better than what i currently have <laughs> what do you mean the bahamas yeah how is that not better than iowa this i don't know like read a bahamian newspaper i don't know how to read what language is that in it's like the nassau guardian and and the tribune but i don't know what i can't i only know english they, yeah the, the newspaper will have english oh nothing else okay. nothing else will nothing isn't, else okay isn't yeah. canada still under the queen Yes, um, it is. So did you know that Canada actually didn't have full independence until like 1987? Like they used to have to um, pass all their laws, had to go to uh, the parliament and get like approved there. And then it would come back to Canada and then they'd be approved there until like 87. That's, I'm probably uh, got that wrong. And I'm sure that there's like Canadian listeners who are going to like school me on that. But it's a lovely place. So... When things go Mom. south, go on north. <laughs> I'm pretty Mom sure we can say whatever. Seventy three. <laughs> next um, time on the Revolutions podcast. Next time on the Revolutions podcast. <laughs> the Canadian Revolution. Nineteen eighty seven. I'm going to take you out to a place in 1987. Oh, it's such a great podcast. If you're not listening, you really should. It's it's really great. I am right now in the thick of the uh, Haitian Revolution, and mm. it's awesome. Really good stuff. Um, anyways, let's get on to technical stuff, technically speaking. Um, I think this is 
the spotlight. Now, remember a couple times ago, I said I was going to name these all things that were tech related. And of course, as Paul pointed out, I probably wouldn't do that. And I didn't still. Um, so why don't you tell us what you want to talk about today, Paul, on the spotlight on Can I Has Use It segment. Do, do we have an over or under on the renaming? God, I hope not. We got, oh, we got to start that. Um, I just hope we get a theme song for it. <laughs> Still working on that too. We'll, we'll get there. What's the over under for the theme song, Nick? Do we have one of those? <laughs> uh, careless whisper for everything, I think. But <laughs> I'm just gonna Nick, get Nick doing karaoke for everything. <laughs> that would be fantastic. <laughs> wow. We're so, winning the podcast award this year for sure. So uh, I just wanted to briefly introduce the um, Flux, which is a um, a kind of a command dispatcher model in uh, with that's commonly used with React. Um, and so we could probably go really deep into this, but as as a spotlight on, I just wanted to say um, that Flux is kind of a neat uh, approach to to dealing with data. It it kind of makes things. Uh, uh, unidirectional like actions and things like that that happen and so what the flux model kind of details is you you have a system where you have a bunch of actions that are part of your system and all of your actions go through this this dispatcher and you have a single dispatcher for your application or i'm assuming your you know most of your application and what happens is your um you you make changes through this dispatcher and other <clears throat> other stores and stuff registered to your dispatcher um, to to receive payloads and, and information that goes through here, and so um, it's it's kind of like an event bus where you have all of your data pushing through this this dispatcher, and then your stores pick it up on the other end and say, "Oh, this action is to be taken. Here's the payload for the action. Do I want to mutate my stores in order to to accommodate this action that's happening?" And um, what's nice about it is the the stores themselves don't bind directly or uh, um, to to your views, or they don't bind to your controllers. So it's not like this this bidirectional binding thing that's going on. Instead, data flows through your dispatcher from the the top. It goes into your stores. The stores get to decide, kind of like a domain model, uh, what to do with its own data. And then the stores typically event out and say, "Hey, dude, my data's changed. Um, you know, here's some new information for you." And then the views actually react to that. And so you've got this loop react. that goes around. Yeah, react. Ah, good work. Um, yeah, anyway, so you've got this, this, this cycle that goes around in a circle. And um, it, it's, it's nice in that you don't have to worry about data changing all over. And you have all these connections that are bidirectional and go back and forth. It's easier to kind of track down and affect changes on, on the system. And um, it's a little nicer to test than than views that like to do everything all at once. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to give everybody kind of an idea of what Flux and React uh, in React does, and um, give people a chance to go check it out if they're interested. So, can I ask a question? Oh gosh, no! Oh, hold on, let me open my browser. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's hopefully a simple one, uh, and and it's one thing that was confusing to me when I first started looking at the Flux stuff. As I understand it, Flux is just a uh, architecture pattern. It's not. There's not actually like a Flux framework, but there are thousands of implementations of it. Um, do you have a 
preferred one that you've been looking at? I don't. Um, I've heard that uh, Redux is a good spin on Flux, and um, I've looked at it a little bit, but I haven't used it in practice very much. So I can't say yes, absolutely. Have, have, you've mentioned Redux before, though, haven't you, Nick? Yeah, and, and it does kind of follow that uh, a bit. It kind of drops uh, some things that it considers unnecessary, and this is all just their, their um, take on it. Uh, but it doesn't actually have a dispatcher, and it doesn't have the concept of multiple stores. It just has a mm. single store for everything, right. and then you just dispatch item uh, actions to that store directly, and then everything in there is read-only. So it still has right. that unidirectional data flow. It's still the same in that regard. Um, that's really the only one that I've kind of looked at, um, but I have watched the Flux video on Facebook's website, uh, so it's it's definitely worth checking out, I think, because it's just an interesting take on on that. And I, I know in in work that I've done in the past, you know, it's it can be very difficult and tedious to manage state when it's changing all over the place. And this kind of pattern, I haven't used it in like a huge app yet, but uh, this kind of pattern seems like it would be, it would definitely clean that up so you would hopefully not run into issues like that and it would make for more easily tested code. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the neat things it helps out with, which is a huge problem, especially if you're uh, kind of not a, super experienced programmer is that it deals with race conditions really well, right? Where there's a lot of, there's a lot of times where one event will trigger another event. Uh, and if you don't implement that correctly, you get into all sorts of weird problems where, uh, you know, we talked about virtual DOM way back when, but it's one of those problems where something will change the state of the DOM and then something else will assume a state in the DOM and it'll, you know, get, get really confused. Whereas what's kind of neat about this pattern is that the, the dispatcher aims to com fully complete an action before it sends another action. So like you were, you know, you were kind of saying that it's a circle, but what's kind of neat is that it's a, it's a loop, but it doesn't loop back on itself, right? Like there's still, there's a queue that goes into the loop uh, right. and then there's a definitive end to the loop, which is, I think one of the neater parts of that whole system. Yeah. And, so uh, I haven't. Thing. Oh, I was just going to say that one interesting thing when you mentioned race conditions is that Trump script handles this by actually putting up a big wall. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Tori. Um, I was going to say something a little more okay, technical. We keep going with this. Oh, shoot. <laughs> it's a gift. I was going to say that, like, no, no one really wants him in the race. <laughs> That's not enough what the votes people, say. Enough people are still using it. <laughs> um, so, anyway. Uh, it's huge. So, I haven't. Oh God! I haven't used. I haven't used um, fair in in large applications the the flux pattern, but I have used a uh, command pattern with an executor instead of a dispatcher, and a domain model which protects your your model and, and manages its own internal state, and that actually scales very well. And with your executors, you can kind of manage that um, whether things happen all at once or you know one at a time, and and um, that has in in my past has served me really well. Um, this pattern looks, you know, extremely similar to that where you have, instead of an executor, you have a dispatcher that goes directly into your stores and your stores mutate their own state and protect it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a rehash of, kind of an old idea or a couple old ideas. Yeah. I kind of like the, everything going, like you kind of have a pivot point, right? Where everything that, all, all the read, all the write changes kind of happen up front. 
and then there's kind of a, 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 a switch that's flipped, and then everything reads from those written changes. And I, I, I think that's a really kind of important part of the pattern is that um, you, you kind of end up with, with a state where everything should change and a state where nothing should change. And I think that's kind of uh, really, really helpful in terms of, of preventing problems from happening. Speaking of old ideas uh, that are coming back in um, and preventing things bad from happening, um, just want to mention uh, Trump script again. So, <laughs> I knew it was right. <laughs> Oh, I wish we all had seen it coming. Um, so, Nick and Paul, uh, why don't you guys talk, uh, tell us about uh, what you guys did last week. Um, go for it. So Nick, you're mining oh, no. right now. Nick is muted again. <laughs> that hardware mute button eludes me. Um, we had our first uh, SitePen TypeScript and ES6 workshop. And uh, so we taught that online. And uh, it was a really good time. Um, I thought we'd talk about it a little <coughs> bit on the podcast today just because it was it was interesting. It was it was very interesting to, you know, take the the concepts that we had written materials for and, um, you know, to teach them to people that haven't been looking at ES6 or, or want to get to kind of fill in the holes in what's out there. Cause there's so much out there and TypeScript and, you know, what, how it makes sense, where it fits into things. And, uh, it was just really interesting to, um, see what pieces were easily, uh, were, were easy to grasp, what pieces, uh, caused some confusion and, you know, how we can work on that better. But I, I think that this is something that relates to anyone who's going forward with with a new version of the language or TypeScript. Um, and there, there's just a lot to it. There's a lot of, of changes, and it can be daunting. And, and so I thought we'd talk maybe a little bit about, you know, what was, what was interesting about it, what was challenging, and, uh, you know, some of the difficulties that we had with, with getting things together. Uh, Paul, did you want to add anything to that? Nope. No. Uh, <laughs> I, I hope SitePen was involved. Yeah, so it's it's a big effort. Um, we had uh, myself, uh, who worked on a lot of the, the um, tooling for the workshop and a little bit of the materials. Paul, who did a massive amount of the materials, um, you know, writing up the slides, the examples, coming up with those things like that. Uh, and then we also had uh, others from SitePen that aren't on this podcast, uh, Dylan, uh, James, and um, others as well, for sure. Suzanne. She cracked the whip, yep. Oh, yeah. I made a graphic. Nice. Tori, yeah? That's it. That's all I've done. I made. Oh, one yeah. Graphic. I made Tori make a slot machine graphic. <laughs> <laughs> that was a cool, a cool graphic. I don't know which one we're referring to, but... It was probably great. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, uh, I joined Nick on the, um, uh, the last day to kind of help out with the, the, the chat rooms and stuff like that, where people ask lots of questions. And, um, so I was able to kind of observe through, you know, what had went on and, and everything, what a lot of the common questions were too. Um, a lot of it's just, you know, new material and, oh my God, JavaScript's becoming a real language. So, uh, 
yeah, that that's where a lot of people want to kind of stop and, and take stock and say, okay, I understood JavaScript to be this loose bag of code, and now they're trying to do something with it, and now I got a lot of questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely it. It, it seems like you know JavaScript has always kind of had this this notion that it's just this little scripting language that you know is just in the browser. You don't have like there's not a lot to it. It's and and how could anyone write code all day in it? Well, we do, uh, and it, I really <laughs> like it. Um, and ES6 and TypeScript just make it so much nicer to work with, in my opinion. That's my opinion. I know I've seen other opinions though on that subject. Wait, other opinions on the internet that I know disagree. It's, I know. What? We you need to lock down this internet thing. Yeah, I'm getting. I'm going to get Bill Gates in here, and I'm locking the door until he fixes it. <laughs> So what are you, what are some of the things that I, you heard um, or saw people you know struggling with or asking about the most? Uh, so definitely in my mind, some things that come up are maybe the um, module syntax seemed to kind of come up uh, a few times in different sections that weren't specifically talking about the module section, but were kind of using modules. And I think it's just because it's a weird syntax. You know, it's blending a lot of things together. First off. If you're writing uh, JavaScript code today, you're probably using a module loader already, so you kind of get the idea of what you're doing. You're bringing in other files and being able to, to use publicly exposed pieces of those files. Um, things like uh, CommonJS and AMD uh, do that for us. And so that's nice, but now we have this import keyword, and there are several permutations of using the import keyword. Um, and then you mix that in with other new features of the language, like object destructuring, and it, it kind of leads to, to something that is a, a bit hard to grasp um, because there's, there's just so many different pieces of it, and it definitely makes you uh, stop at that line and think, you know, what is actually going on? Uh, what, what's being loaded in? How do I use that? Uh, and until you really get used to I think probably the main thing is when, until you get really used to seeing the object destructuring uh, syntax, uh, you can struggle with it for a while. And also, uh, in your modules, you use the export keyword to make pieces of your your module publicly <coughs> available, so that when they're imported somewhere else, the things that were exported are the things that can be used in that other module. And uh, with that, there's export default, so you have one default export that you can have per module. And then you have, when, when you import those, you can name the, uh, bring in the default export and name that, and then have the additional exports in an object destructuring syntax separated by a comma. And you can rename those using the as keyword. And there's, there's just a lot to it, I think. And that can definitely be tricky to, to uh, work with and, and to understand. So I think that there's, you know, it, it, like, Mainly the 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 thing was that it, that it seemed like just you know the new syntax getting used to the new syntax is going to be the hardest part. But yeah. once you do, I think that there's a lot that you can take advantage of to write more concise, clean code. Yeah, and, and something that was always weird to me is is there's like a destructuring like syntax. But if I remember correctly, in destructuring, when you're destructuring an object, you use a colon to to rename it. And then when you're destructuring in in imports, you use as. Yeah, I never got that, other than to confuse people or something. I, <laughs> I don't know why they did that. 
I like the as. I, I think you know both should be viable as far as like imports go, but you know standards. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, I think one of the weird things are for for imports and exports and module loading is with the the ES6 module standard. Um, it, this is the first time that people really had to think about a module syntax separate from a module loader. Because yes, they've, that's true. They've def- yeah, they've defined the module syntax now in ES6, and then somewhere down the road, we're going to have a loader standard, maybe. Yeah, and then, yeah. So right now, there's no way to use that syntax unless you're transpiling to something else like CommonJS or AMD. And then, uh, if you're more familiar with AMD, which most of us are, uh, because that's what Dojo uses, it's. Um, TypeScript can be a bit weird too. Well, both of them, I guess. But um, you don't really have this idea of a module plugin in in ES6 module syntax. And is that called ESM? Is that I haven't so heard e- that or seen that. Before. ESM ESM is the name of yeah the module syntax, and ES ES6 is is the the standard. So if you say ES6 modules, I think that's fine with everybody. ESM is the new you know shortcut. For like AMD and CJS. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hadn't seen ESM before. That's why I uh, was just curious on it. Cause it, I do like it. It's just, you know, it's typically yeah. when I see it on Twitter and such, it's ESX modules index and, and yeah, so very verbose. Um, but, but we don't really have a, this concept of a AMD uh, module uh, plugin. So we, we don't have, you know, the ability in Dojo, we use it a lot to load in templates uh, using the text plugin, there's also an internationalization plugin, so you can load in your NLS bundles easily with that. Um, we don't have that concept in ESM, so TypeScript does give us a way to do that using a um, a directive comment, the AMD dependency right. directive. Um, but it's still a little weird, and it does force you to build that code to AMD, otherwise it, it just wouldn't work. So it's it's something that you know, I think that the, it gives you a lot of things, but in that regard, we're going to have to kind of rethink how we, we work with non-JS or, or non-just simple loading uh, features where, you know, where you're trying to do functionality as the module loaded. Yeah. You know, there, there'll be some rework and rethought around that. But In Trump script, you don't have to actually work <laughs> with it. They will work with you because you are the winner. Well, the problem with Trump script. I you guys knew that is the variables change their mind all the time. First, they're one value and they're in the other value. Their values change all the time. But that's, you know what that's called? <laughs> that's called good evolving code. Like you don't that, want code that's just static and is always, you know, the same. Like you want it to evolve as the conditions change. <laughs> the biggest problem I think with Trump's script is you have to, you have to use such tiny fingers to type it out. <laughs> oh, you're going to get sued for that. <laughs> good work. Uh, so did, did you guys have them uh, kind of work through a project during the class? So we had some activities. Um, and with those activities, uh, we focused them around tests. So we provided intern tests right. and we provided the solutions for those. But then we stubbed out modules and, and methods within those modules uh, that they needed to complete to get the test to pass. Okay. Uh, so, 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 the, so a lot of those were more focused around kind of um, not necessarily like uh, 
architecture, like object architecture, but more about kind of just using the language. Right. And we we were just using um, things like the array methods, the new array methods. We had uh, unit tests to get uh, get passing with those. Iterators, classes, and namespaces uh, in in TypeScript, classes in in ES6 as well, and then um, interfaces in TypeScript were kind of the the main things that we had activities uh, focused around. Did anyone struggle getting like set up or getting things going initially? Because I mean, it is a lot different than just saving a file and hitting reload, right? It was yeah. how would how'd that process go? Uh, it was pretty simple because we we provided tooling that that really took care of a lot of that. So you prepared for, for that, just not this podcast. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I prepared for this podcast. What are you talking about? <laughs> he he has a Capri Sun. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, but we, we provided the tooling for that. Now, the tooling that we provided was, um, you know, tooling is always going to be different per project, and, and that's going to be an initial thing. I think we've talked about this in the past about how, you know, it's something that somebody's going to have to get set up, and then once you get it set up, it's really easy for anyone else to come in and get working. Well, I was the canary in the coal mine for these projects and, and getting that set up, and I kind of created a tool around the constraints of, possibly having students in the class that can't get things from NPM because of um, uh, network restrictions at, at, you know, corporate offices and things like that. So with those constraints in mind, we kind of developed a tool that uh, you could just pass in TypeScript or JavaScript to it, and it could com- it could figure out what it needs to do and compile it based on that. And it compiled it to a UMD format so that it could be loaded in um, in the browser with AMD or with the AMD intern loader, or it could be loaded in Node and run there. Uh, we didn't really have any any need to run it in Node, but possibly in the future that'd be something that we look into. And so that was easy to get set up, and it we did not really have any problems around that. So that's good. That was definitely that's good. good to hear, Nick. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> we did have a discussion about it though in the class, and that's one other thing that this workshop is kind of different from the past workshops that we've taught where we just, we have materials and we kind of teach them. Uh, and, you know, we have kind of these impromptu, uh, impromptu discussions uh, as time permits, but we actually built in discussion time into every piece of the workshop. So there's, there is time set aside to discuss and topic ideas or, you know, the, the topic ideas can just naturally flow from the class. Uh, but I think that that was really good. Some things that we talked about were, um, the, the Dojo 2 roadmap, where things are going with that, uh, because that is written in TypeScript. And we also talked about tooling and what you can get and use to, to set that up. Um, you know, the, there's several different practices for that, but we talked about advantages and disadvantages of each and, and uh, you know, what, what would go into that decision-making process. It's not something that we can cover in full, I don't think, in a workshop, just because it's going to be different based on the needs of your application that you're building. That's really cool. I think uh, on the next one that we teach, I should sit in and do some learning because I don't know anything about how to actually use it. And it'd be nice to just do that for a couple of days. Be fun. If you promise to insert random Trump script things into it. <laughs> okay. That's all I do. I don't know how to do anything else. Okay. Thanks, guys. So, um, Neil, why don't you... 
talk about your bug of the week, which I think we gave you a lot of a lot of uh, grief about when we were doing the pre meeting because I don't think any of us were convinced that what you had found was a bug at all. Um, and then you googled it for the next thirty minutes while we all talked about this show and prepared. Yep. Um, and then we kind of just hung up on you, and I don't think we ever even <laughs> figured out if it was or not. We were just like, whatever. Um, so the bug is either going to be what you say it is, or the bug will be that you thought it was a bug and it's not. So in that case, oh, so Neil is the bug, right? Neil is probably the bug, for sure. <laughs> well, it's interesting because what I thought it was is similar to what it actually was, but not the same thing. And I think we're going to get into probably a discussion after this about why the fact that I thought it was something and it was really something else is so problematic um, because it, it's kind of uh, an illustration of this issue as a whole. Like um, you're talking about this issue as in like our election cycle or are you talking about the bug? Just, just uh, the way that, that, that people think. Okay, yeah, because I can <laughs> definitely see that, you know, the issue of thinking something, you know, it's one thing, but it's really something different but similar. Yeah, we're just going to have a discussion about that. Okay, let's do it then. <laughs> Um, so, uh, actually I haven't run into a, a good bug for a little while, which is why you guys have been taking over the bug of the week. Um, this bug was super fun because, uh, we, uh, implemented a bunch of, uh, of code for, uh, one of our support customers and, uh, we had this pop-up that had, uh, four to eight little text boxes, um, specifically the digit form number text box widget, which is uh, a subclass of the digit digit form text box widget. So it's just a, it's a specially validated text box, yeah. Because digit has a really, really clean object hierarchy. Um, <laughs> so, um, I'm surprised you could say that with a straight face, but... <laughs> he, I touched I my nose when I said so it. well, I couldn't even figure it out. <laughs> I was laughing on mute. <laughs> so... Um, uh, when I implemented it and tested it in all the browsers, uh, tried a bunch of different things and they came back to us and they said, Hey, uh, we have this weird situation where in internet Explorer, if we click on the first field and then press the tab button, uh, it crashes our browser. Uh, so that was a fun, <laughs> that's a Insert fun bug, internet right? Explorer joke here. Oh, that's <laughs> because, a feature. <laughs> it's supposed to do that. It's protecting you. <laughs> And this this is IE eleven, so you know mm-hmm. how great is it that we can still write JavaScript that crashes a browser. Um, so what was happening? Uh, if you you could actually watch it, it didn't just freeze the browser and then crash. It kind of did this odd thing for a couple of minutes before crashing, which was great. Uh, which is basically that when you tabbed from the the first field to the second field, when you press the tab button, it would then immediately change focus back to the first field. And as soon as it did that, it would immediately change focus back to the second field and then back to the first field and so on uh, indefinitely. Uh, it took me a while to actually track down what was going on. Uh, and I basically uh, figured out that there was a, uh, an on blur function uh, on the text box that was supposed to fire almost all the time. So it had in its code a special check to say only do this if you're a Mozilla browser. So this is going to get us into the whole problem of user, user agents next. But but basically, almost every browser identifies itself now as a Mozilla-compatible browser. And what that means is that it, it behaves in certain ways. Uh, it has certain bugs, and it has certain features. So 
the the Hasmozilla check isn't a check for Firefox. It's a check for a set of behaviors because most browsers at this point identify themselves as a Mozilla browser, which is odd, but that's the history that we have uh, with the, the landscape of JavaScript. And what had happened is the Internet Explorer 11, while still identifying it as itself as a Mozilla browser, uh, no longer necessarily conforms to those set of features and bugs that the old Mozilla browser has. So uh, if you look at uh, the more recent user agent sniffing that we do uh, in, in Dojo specifically, we have to add a check that says that it isn't a Mozilla browser if it has Trident in its user agent string. So it basically it says it, it is a Mozilla compatible browser unless it's not. Uh, and it does that by another check. And so it's, we not actually really, have, it's not really lying. It's just that it doesn't really care about what the truth is. Well, it's it's been calling Wolf for so long <laughs> that... <laughs> Bra- browsers well, don't care it, about what the truth is. Let's just let's yeah. just put that out there. Like, so it 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 still has to identify itself as a Mozilla browser to for all sorts of other reasons, um, but it's not conforming itself to those old standards anymore, uh, which is kind of crazy. So what I had to do to fix this problem is I had to add that bit that says it's Mozilla unless this other thing's true. Once I added that, everything was great. Everything else in the code continued to work uh, as expected. It's just, uh, yeah, really, I mean, the fact that it was crashing the browser was just really, really fun to see because that just doesn't happen anymore. So just to recap, you you fixed the user agent sniffing? No, to... I actually, I couldn't fix the user agent sniffing. Okay. Because a bunch of the rest of the code still depends on that. So... What I, this was actually a two-step process where the first thing that I did was fix user agent sniffing. But um, after that happened, a completely unrelated area of code uh, where they had a drop-down, uh, a drop-down picker, uh, when you would click on something, instead of choosing that value, it would uh, highlight a different value and scroll up. Right? So they were depending on a certain, a certain <laughs> scrolling offset uh, that, that Mozilla browsers normally do that was no longer being done. And I assume that this is fixed in code in later versions of Digit, but in this case, it broke, it broke that item. So then I had to, instead of doing a global user agent sniff fix, I had to, in that specific one, say, if it's a Mozilla browser, but it doesn't have this other feature, then perform this on blur functionality. So, so just... Super fun stuff. You were still doing some kind of user agent sniffing in your, yep. and and you sleep at night. How? <laughs> <laughs> On a well, pile takes me a of user agent strings. <laughs> <laughs> takes me a while to fall asleep. So I just had to say that I'm the Chris Christie yeah. behind you, just like looking at you, like what? <laughs> I just have Eli Manning face. I'm not. I'm not endorsing it though. <laughs> okay, that's that's fair. <laughs> You're just using it for your own gains. Yeah, exactly. yeah, that checks out. <laughs> uh huh. I don't endorse it, but but <clears throat> and, and so yeah, that's exactly the problem with with using user agent uh, strings anywhere. You know, like there's a very few things that you can't, you absolutely have to do user agent sniffing in order to identify, just because there's no viable check for it. For as a as a alternative, you know, we typically want to use 
uh, feature detection. And, and for some things like certain CSS things, there's just no good way of doing feature detection. Um, I mean, even if it's possible, it, it you know, it's, um, it interrupts the page or, or something like that to do. <clears throat> but whenever you do user agent sniffing, you're constantly in this race to re release and, and continue to update faster than whatever um, browser keeps, uh, you know, browsers release and keep doing. And so yeah, I would I, say, yeah, go ahead. I think this one in particular, like, I think it's a good example of kind of something that is very hard to do a feature detection for, right? Like, it's some situation where the on blur function crashes the browser, right? Like, um, <laughs> why don't you write detected some code right to there? That. Detect yeah. that the browser <laughs> crashes and then. I mean, that, a that's a good one, but another one is, is kind of some of the visual stuff that happens, right? Like, where both browsers report that its scroll offset is 100 pixels, but that scroll offset being implemented looks completely differently mm -hmm. in, in two different browsers. Like, you can't, you can't detect how something looks. You can detect how something acts and something behaves, um, or like you can detect things that are kind of side effects of it, but feature detection only goes so far. And feature detection can break in the same way that user agent detection breaks. So it's kind of, you know, I think, I think the evil here is not with the detection methods. <laughs> sure, sure. And I, I think just to, to take a step back and, and maybe think about why there's, there's even discussion on this, like, so the big worry with using user agent sniffing is that a new version of the browser at any point could change the user agent, and then for no reason at all, uh, your app could just stop working in that next version of the browser because it's relying on this check and then it doesn't see that, so it tries to run the code a different way, and things can break that way. Now, feature detection would be checking to see if the feature that you actually need is available in the browser, and if it's not, uh, then you can do things like polyfill in if it's possible, or pop up an alert and tell them to upgrade, or you know the the usual things. Um, but the and you're right, they can break in in the same way. But generally, if the feature exists and you can test for it, it's likely that it'll probably be there in a the next version of the browser. Uh, so you should be safe for upgrading. Um, but there are cases, like you said, that you can't rely on feature detection. Um, uh, because maybe the feature does exist, but it just doesn't, it's not implemented correctly. Um, yeah, specifically, I think the, the, the area where I think user agent detection will exist for a long time is bugs. Sure. And that's where, yes. I mean, that's where a lot of the user agent detection stuff happened in the first place. I mean, we've talked, we've talked a few times about kind of how many bad things in JavaScript are kind of because of slippery slope stuff. Mm -hmm. where the original reason that we did something was pretty good, and then it just kind of spun out of control from there. Like, like Trump script. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. Yeah. Uh, so those situations, you know, it's almost always beneficial to limit those as much as possible. And and you're right. Like bugs, as far as that goes, we, I had a bug of the week that we did a few podcasts ago that was related to to um, view uh, viewport offsets that is basically yep. impossible to detect or extremely yep. difficult to detect without um, throwing iframes in there or doing terrible things to the page, which, you know, you can detect it using um, some sort of feature detection uh, or, or checking uh, to see that it, it does exist. But it's so much easier to say, oh, this bug is limited to this this range 
of Chrome browsers. And, and so in this range, we're going to implement um, a different fix than or a different implementation that addresses this. Um, yeah. A lot of user agent sniffing doesn't do that limitation. So, I mean, it's valid as long as you're doing that. But most people say, oh, yeah, Mozilla as a user agent. And it's totally supposed to have these assumptions and this yeah. flow and everything. That's when it's problematic. I mean, this this all makes me think that like some of this user agent stuff. It's odd that it that it is code that ships with projects, right? Like it seems like it's uh, there should be some sort of service where you ask an API to give you an updated list of what is and isn't broken, right? Like. Uh, the the odd thing about it seems that it's not it's not a living piece of code that we spend so much time kind of in this very uh, locked in time version of feature detection or user agent detection. Yeah, that's always one of those trade offs. You could probably yep. do that, but you have to identify the features that relate back to the browsers and then have a list of browsers that updates. And then you're going to incur a cost of at least a network call to, to do it. And if you're not hosting that that file yourself that does this, which I think is a great idea, but if you're not hosting that file yourself, then you're you you have a, a network and the the host has a network issue. Then you've you've added another uh, link in your chain that can break. That's what you just, you do a caching redirect. No, there's there's plenty of great solutions. It's just you know it's it adds complexity. We should talk about caching redirects sometime because those are. I'm a big fan. <laughs> Isn't that one of the the two hardest things on the internet, or the writing code, caching and naming? Hand off by one errors. Yeah, yeah that's what I said too. Ah, <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, boy. So, are there any real hard and fast rules? So, I know that. Uh, there's a, a want to have very black and white, never do user agent sniffing um, type things. But, you know, is what are the cases where, I don't know, where someone could say, you know, this is a valid use of that? I think it, it would be where you could, you could detect the feature and it exists there, but there's a bug in the way that that feature is implemented. Yep. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it is, but I know that, or I'm, I'm 90% sure that Dojo's Dom geometry library does user agent sniffing because the, um, if it, if it didn't know that it was running an IE, then the calculations that it's doing to figure out where the coordinates of, of some element on the page would be wrong in IE because, IE just gives back wrong information. So it has to compensate yeah. for that and know that it's actually an IE. Yeah, scroll offset yeah. is is one of the that most buggy is it's one of the most buggy uh, attributes that there is in in the DOM. Gotcha. Scroll offset's just it's so wrong in so many places. Or or they've added new values that like offset what the scroll offset is. You know, it's it's kind of crazy. And then what should people be doing when they if they are forced to use a user agent uh, sniff. Um, what are some things that people can do to kind of prevent, um, you know, future browsers that get released, you know, passing that check, like, you know, it will, is it IE? Well, it is, but now it's fixed, like, or, you know, but now you're, now you're really screwed because the, the old code now is broken. You know, like, I, I guess what should people be looking for? Yeah. Like an example is there's a new browser now that Brendan I. Uh, that's kind of released called Brave. And 
it's I don't know a whole lot about how it's built, but like how could we prevent things from just automatically breaking in that browser? Uses feature detection. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think I think one way you can um, do it with as far as as far as um, browser detection goes, uh, user agent sniffing is uh, you can try to limit the version as much as possible. If you're addressing a bug, address that bug. And if you're addressing a bug that's an ongoing bug, that's difficult. Maybe you know if it's a if it's something that may get fixed in in a future version, and you can if you really need to, you can troll um, uh, kind of bug lists and things like that because uh, like Chromium has a, their own bug lists and Firefox does as well. You can troll those lists and say, okay, is this something that's going to be fixed soon? And it does it have a version release? And if it doesn't, then you know maybe you use Neil's solution and you know host up a JSON that says. Yeah, turn this off and at and at null version, and when that null version becomes an actual version, turn it off if if the user agent sniff doesn't meet that range. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, I definitely don't think that that user agent sniffing should be the first result; it should be the last. So, I mean, I would say that the the thing that you do is you keep all your libraries updated all the time, <laughs> which is <laughs> really really tough. That's a good I, idea. I think, and then well, I think that's, you just work with, you know, every time you upgrade that everything's broken and then just, yeah, no, it's good. It. I could use the time. <laughs> well, because like, like I was saying in the bug that I fixed, right? Like I fixed the user agent detection, but then it broke the code because the code was expecting certain, you know, certain So, so did you fix the user, user agent detected? No, I had ask. to revert it. Yeah. I had to revert the user agent detection because the rest of the code assumed a certain behavior from the user agent detection. Right. So you can't you can't just, uh, I mean, yeah, you can't just make a set of assumptions uh, in the user agent string. You have to yeah. also make some assumptions in the code that you write that uses user agent strings. Yeah. So so I mean that's the only yeah. way to keep like keep everything updated all the time. Is <laughs> the only way yeah. that you can ensure that everything's going to work exactly the way you want it to. Yeah, minimizing those assumptions are key, and also dealing with flags based on user agent strings is a lot better than dealing on the with the user agent string directly. If yep. Neil was dealing with a flag that said, turn on this crazy behavior, um, and that evaluated down to a user agent string, it would be pretty simple for him to just add, and you know, user agent string doesn't have Trident in it, and it would just affect that one behavior um, throughout the application, wherever it may occur, but just that one behavior. Okay. Yeah, flags. I mean, flags in general are, are, are way better. Like talking about the live updating list of, of user agent stuff. The way I would do it with, is with flags, right? Like I would just say like uh, on blur is a problem, right? Like uh, that that kind of system is much better than simply going through user agent strings, right? Like the the change that I had to make was it was using a user agent string, and then I had to add an, a second user agent string detector. Instead of just having a flag that says this distinct problem is an issue, right? Blur is a problem. Right. Yeah, I like flags a lot more than user agent strings. I think we all agree on that. <laughs> well, I'm a little disappointed that there was so much agreement this time. Um, but anyway, well, thanks, guys, uh, for, for, the good sh for the good show today. Um, and I just want to, again, remind everybody um, that our sponsor today is the Travel Industry of Canada. Um, 
So this November, if things go south, you can always go north. Hey, haven't you always wanted to be the problem on the southern border? Now you can. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, before we go, I wanted to uh, do a shout out, if that's okay. Uh, it's okay. I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's totally I just okay. wanted to I'll say... edit it out. I'll edit it out later. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Do out. whatever you want. Say whatever you want. <laughs> I just wanted to say thank you. Um, Paul and I uh, and, and Dylan, when we were in the workshop last week, uh, we actually had some attendees of the workshop say that they listened to the podcast. So oh, thank yeah. you. Did they thank also you. say they enjoyed it? <laughs> they did. They did. Okay. <laughs> So, it doesn't matter. You know, we, have yeah, we, have, we have listeners. We have listeners. So yeah, thank you to uh, to the workshop attendees who also listen to this podcast. So, hey awesome. Nick, I just I really wanted to let you know, like I listened to the podcast and I really I, I just I listened to it. And you're just terrible. <laughs> I subscribe and I download. Do you do you like it? Uh, I listen I listen to it. <laughs> I, I mean I it it downloads. Yeah. So it's on my phone. It's on my phone. <laughs> Yes, thank you to the listeners for sure. I'm always bad at doing that and saying thank you in general, just in my life, like not even about this, just in general. And we want we want questions too. Yes, yeah. We, we also want questions. That's right. Ask us anything. Um, actually, yeah, at this point, ask us anything and we'll yeah. just like give you an answer. Like it doesn't even matter what it is. It does not need to be about does JavaScript. It does not need to be about JavaScript. It could be about <laughs> Trump script. It could be about, you know, Canada. Um, you know, it could be about zombie apocalypse. It doesn't matter. Our company has a pretty decent amount of experience with Canada though. It, yes, yeah. and, and zombie apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, so like, you know. Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. See you. Bye, everyone.